0: Okay, well, it's great to be here in uh, Myrtle Beach. I think that's where we are, right? Yes. And uh, I'm looking forward to getting to know some of the leaders from uh, some of the other churches and ministries involved here. And uh, I see Tricia Frost there. It's great to see you again after a number of years. I think the last time I was in Myrtle Beach, maybe the only time I've been in Myrtle Beach, I was on actually a motorcycle tour. And we stopped by here, on a friend of mine, and we spent some time hanging out. But uh, it's good to be with you. Um, I just want to uh, give you kind of a focus on what I sense the Lord to focus on um, this weekend. I want to talk uh, or gear ourselves primarily towards being what I call big picture Christians in our thinking that I believe there's three levels of faith a Christian can have in life. The first level of faith is what I call Lamb of God faith. And Lamb of God faith is like what John the Baptist said when he pointed out Jesus is the Messiah. He said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And everybody who comes into the kingdom, who is born again, they come in because of that initial Lamb of God faith. But that is foundational, and unfortunately, some Christians never go beyond that. And, for example, you can talk to people who say they've known the Lord for 30 years and say, well, what does God do in your life? What has your testimony been the last few years? What's the Lord been up to, to you and through you? And they say, well, I'm really looking forward to going to heaven. And, you know, 20 years ago, I got saved from drug abuse or this problem or that problem. You say, well, that's great. But... What is God doing in your life right now? And sometimes they're just clueless, because their faith has remained in the event of the cross, but not moved into the real day-to-day relationship. The second aspect I call Jehovah Jireh faith, because Jehovah Jireh, as most of you know in the Hebrew, means the Lord God provides. And when you're moving in that level of faith, there's very much a sense that God is actively involved in your life day in, day out. He is Emmanuel. He's the God who is there. And he not only wants to impart things to you, but he wants to impart things through you. And so there's an active, ongoing testimony and experience of the goodness of God day to day, week by week, month by month, season by season. But there's a third level of faith that I think God has really wanted to awaken the church in the Western world to, And that includes us the United States. And that's what I call Lion of the Tribe of Judah faith. And Lion of the Tribe of Judah faith has to do with the understanding that Jesus is not just the Savior who gave his life and rose from the dead 2,000 years ago, but the nations are being given to him as an inheritance. And that God's spirit is at work all over the globe, whether we see it or not. And... It's all three levels of faith are good, but God wants us to grow up because we're to be part of something much bigger than our little lives and even our little situations. And so uh, that's what I want to focus on. Specifically, I'm going to be talking about an awakening that I believe God is bringing to the body of Christ in the Western world. I also want to talk about miracles. And miracles are not an end in and of themselves. Sometimes people get guilty of, they get just so focused on the gifts of the Spirit, they lose sight of the gift giver himself. But miracles are something that, as Paul wrote to the Church of Galatia, he said, God not only gives you the Spirit, but he works miracles in your midst. It's one of the key calling cards God has given the church that somehow we've lost that testify of the fact that God Almighty is with us and his hand is at work. <clears throat> but also, and you can relax, I don't have COVID. <laughs> it's allergies. <laughs> my, my wife and I were on a plane. We, we've flown a lot the last year and a half, and we were my wife was flying separately from me somewhere. And uh, somewhere, uh, you know, two or three rows back, someone was coughing and coughing and coughing. You know, everybody's freaking out. COVID. Does she have it? Is, is she double masking what's going on? And after a while, the lady looks up and says, it's allergies, it's allergies. <laughs> but anyway, but uh, I believe that, you know, we need to rediscover that God is a God of compassion. And there's the power of God's compassion. Isn't it interesting in an age where we've got so much scientific breakthrough applying to medicine that the quality of life for so many people health-wise is going downhill? And, uh, you know, it's just, it's just a matter of the compassion of God. But the third thing I want to talk about is, and these will be over these different sessions, is how do we increasingly really, as we, even as we sang about tonight, approach God? As Isaiah said, how do we make a resting place for the Holy Spirit? So we're not just striving to get the blessings of God, but as it says in Psalm 46, verse 10, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. And so we're going to focus on these three things. And uh, I want to begin by talking about a story I heard a while back that I think illustrates of the condition the church is in? There's a couple that's been married about 25 years, and, you know, the wife is just really frustrated over the lack of demonstrative love and affection and things like that. And one day she says to her husband, why don't you treat me how Frank treats Betty down the street? And he's thinking, Frank, Frank and Betty. And she said, you know, the, the couple, we went to the house from the neighborhood block party a couple months ago. Oh, yeah. Well, what do you mean? He says, well, I, I talked to Betty recently, and almost every day before Frank goes to work, he leaves a little uh, note to Betty seeing how much he loves her. Why don't you do that? At least twice a week, he buys her flowers and gives her gifts. Why don't you do that? And he looks at her and says, why in the world would I do that? I don't even know the woman. <laughs> and that we... We're hearing countless amounts of teaching, revelation, insights, and hearing about this anointing, that anointing, but somehow the nuances about how to really put all of this into play, somehow we need to wake up. And I think that even more than we have a hunger for revival, God the Father wants to bring revival. Uh, not just for our benefit, what we need, but he is determined to give the nations to the son as an inheritance. Yeah. And we're just in a key time. Yeah. So I want to talk a little bit, and I, um, uh, I don't want to make any presumptions that, uh, you know, um, uh, well, I, I was asking a couple leaders about Mark and Jane, and they said, they prefer three-hour sermons. I thought, I thought to myself, maybe that's a little bit too long. But uh, no, I'm not going to take uh, advantage of your patience here. Besides that, I'm, I'm, I haven't eaten much today. So, But uh, I, I want to speak a message that I've been focused on in conferences and church visits I've been doing for the last year, year and a half that i think the lord really began to lay in my heart about two to three years ago that's tied into all of this it has to do with where the church is at right now in 2021 and really this whole decade and i'm going to be talking tomorrow a little bit more about historically the great awakenings america and the world has experienced in the last 250 years or so and uh, what's coming but Psalm 73, I'm only going to read uh, two verses, but Psalm 73, the psalmist is talking about how they're, they're feeling overwhelmed with problems they're seeing around them. Problems in the culture, which would have been Israel at that time, problems with people who are living in sin and all these things. And how many of you know that if you don't, 99% of the people around you, including the body of Christ, feel overwhelmed by problems today? COVID, lockdowns, the economy, just uh, we're living the last 10 or 15 years in what people in the news industry call a great acceleration of bad news. It's not just that bad news is happening, but the pace of which it's happening is historical right now. And we can feel so overwhelmed by what's going on. And this is the heart of Psalm 73. But then you get to verse 16, 17, and the psalmist wrote, But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until, say until, until Until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. And with all the talking heads out there, with all the so-called journalists that aren't really journalists out there, with all the politicians, I don't care which side of the political aisle you happen to be in, with all the stuff out there on the Internet, it's only by really knowing God and hearing from God and perceiving what the Lord is saying that we can really understand the working out and the ending of what God's wanting to do. I'm not saying that we can get wisdom for every single problem that we're afflicted with right now, but there is a faith and there is faith, wisdom in that faith that God wants to impart for problems far beyond what we can understand. It says in, uh, the, my mind's gone blank, it's either first or second Samuel, I love, don't you love the fact that one time Jesus, quoting one of the Old Testament prophets, said, somewhere it is written? That gives us great leeway. If Jesus forgot where it's at now, he never forgets anything. But it gives us a lot, of, a lot of leeway. But somewhere it says about David, and I think this is actually in 2 Samuel, but when David became king, the different tribes gathered together to officially make him king and it says about the tribes of the tribe of issachar it says the men of issachar were unique it says they were men who had understanding of the times to know what israel ought to do and when we speak about the prophetic it can't just continue to be an issue of i prophesy blessings over you you prophesy blessings over me somehow we've got to move past this hunger for words of the lord to the word of the Lord. Yeah, right. What is he saying to the church today? I'm not belittling personal prophecy, it's of great value when I mean, it's authentic anyway. But somehow we've got to come back to the original purpose of prophecy, which is seeing with more clarity the person of God. Yeah. I, I love what it says in Revelation 1: the testimony, the revelation of Jesus. And that's really what the church is hurting for in this day and age. But we'll be talking more about that tomorrow. the The body of Christ, I believe, in the Western world, particularly the United States, and I, I refer to the Western world because historically, over the last almost forty years, my ministry has been primarily to not only North America, United States, Canada, but extensively in the UK, uh, Europe, and Scandinavia. In fact, there's somebody here. Do you see her? Is it Gina? that you actually translated for me a number of years ago in Stockholm, Sweden. I won't say how many years ago, but, <laughs> but uh, 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 primarily what, although I do minister in Asian, I, minister, I ministered extensively in Africa, uh, primarily the call I've had upon my life for the last uh, 40 years has been to see some of the ancient places of revival in Europe and North America see those come back to flowing rivers instead of a trickle. But anyway, there is, I believe, biblically what could be called a slumbering spirit upon the Church of the West. Most of you are familiar in uh, the parable of the ten virgins that Jesus shared, that there were ten virgins waiting for the bridegroom to come, and they were waiting and waiting. Actually, this is a picture of the church waiting for the return of the Lord Jesus. And it says the bridegroom was delayed in coming. It was beginning to get dark. And it says they began to get drowsy. Now, all ten of them were virgins, and I don't want to spend a lot of time on that aspect, but that's uh, symbolic to say all ten of them maintained their testimony. They didn't wander off and get involved in this or that. They maintained their purity. And they all, all ten of them, began to feel drowsy. So this slumbering spirit is not just on part of the body of Christ, I believe, but upon all of us at this point in time, myself included. And it says that five of them, you know the parable, had brought extra oil for their lampstands. And I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but biblically, oil is usually symbolic of the flow of God's spirit. I love what it says again in the Psalms, that in his light, we see light. And the five of them who are running out turned to the others uh, of running out of oil in their lampstands and said, would you give us some of your oil? And they said, well, if we give you the extra oil we have, we won't have enough for ourselves. And I want to say this to you, that when Paul said in Ephesians 5, be filled with the Spirit, that was not a suggestion. (laughs) It was not saying, hey, I've got a good idea you might try out. It's a little bit funny when you hear some Christians say, well, there's ten commandments in the Bible. No, there are hundreds of what could be called directive words in the Bible, and one of those is be filled with the Spirit. Aside from the leading, the gifts, and the power, and especially the characteristics of Christ, i.e. the fruit of the Spirit emerging in life, we cannot live a biblically-based Christ-like life. It is impossible. And five of them, so to speak, were filled with the Spirit. They had more than enough. And I believe there's a large part of the body of Christ that because of years, I'm not just talking about non-Pentecostal or non-charismatic churches, but even in many so-called Pentecostal charismatic churches, there's been over the last, dec- or last couple of generations of the church, there's been a marginalizing of the need for the person and the role of the Emmanuel, the presence of God with us. A few years ago, I was uh, doing a conference in uh, Cleveland, Ohio Three or four nights, we were focused on healing. And a woman came up to me and she said, "Um, uh, I have a question. A very good friend of mine, another Christian who goes to another church, she's very sick, in need of healing. Uh, Even though she goes to another church, if I brought her tomorrow night, would you be open to praying for her? I said, well, of course I'd be open to praying for her. And the woman uh, said, well, that's great. Well, I'll bring her. But she said, you know, um, if I could just make an observation, She said, I've been a Christian for almost all my life. She was probably in her 50s. And she said, I grew up here in Cleveland. I've been involved in the church scene in Cleveland for uh, all my life. She said, 15, 20 years ago, on almost any night of the week, if you needed prayer for healing or uh, a touch from God, there were X number of churches you could go to that were ministering the Spirit of God. She said, today, I only know of two churches in Cleveland that are still actively involved in almost every meeting being willing to pray for the sick. And I believe what's happened is, unfortunately, in the church in the West, we've been a little bit like the frog in the kettle. You know, the water's gotten hotter and hotter, and all of a sudden we're waking up with all these problems. The water's getting hot. And it's, uh, as a good friend of mine puts it, we're in a season right now of what in the military they call broken arrow. If you're familiar with that term, it's a term that's only used in a battle situation when the troops on the ground are about to get completely overwhelmed by their enemy. And when the call goes out, broken arrow, It means whatever military resources, whether by plane, by troops, by helicopter, whatever, can possibly get there, you have to get there. You see, what we need right now in North America, Europe, the UK, we don't need a little bit more of church growth. The problems are way beyond that. We don't need just a few more people getting saved. We don't even need another move of the Spirit. What we need is way beyond that because so much of the world is just gone in secular humanism. Unfortunately, much of the church is as well. We're processing events, what's happening around us, from a humanistic, secular, slash political mindset. Now, I I believe in the whole teaching of, let's go after what some people, Lance Wallnau, call the seven mountains. I believe Christians should be involved in every area of influence. And part of our problems are, because in the past, we've abandoned those areas of influence, such as education, media, et cetera, et cetera. But the problem is, we are not gonna solve the issues of this world through, through, just through getting your favorite politician elected. Or getting your favorite representative, or your whoever it may be, it's uh, like Einstein said: We're not going to solve the current problems with the same thinking by which we default these problems. We've got to begin to see things from God's perspective, and the only way we can do that is by being filled with the Spirit. First Chronicles chapter sixteen verse eleven says: Seek the Lord and His strength, seek his presence continually. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20 reads, Now to him, meaning God, who is able to do far more, say far more, far more more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power, and the word there in power is dunamis, dynamite, the power of the Holy Spirit, that's at work within us. But as Paul said to the church of Galatia, God not only gives you the spirit, but he works miracles in your midst. So if we're not experiencing miracles, I don't think it's because God's game plan has changed. Maybe we're, you know, and and I say this about my own life, too. Maybe we've settled for a very low threshold. And I'm not, when I say this, I'm not talking about necessarily having meetings night after night where everybody's out on the floor. But what I'm talking about is a lifestyle in our thinking, our motivation, our prayers, our worship, our relationships being governed by the word of God and the spirit of God. Knowing the power and the presence and the goodness, the grace, the comfort, as well as the self-control. Who knew that self-control was part of the fruit of the Spirit? Anyway, that's another message. So far more. I've been uh, teaching and preaching on healing and miracles for uh, almost 40 years now. And I document a lot of the creative miracles, not just healings, but miracles where God's recreative power is involved. I document them because I love to teach on it. I love to look at the different ways the Spirit of God moves. How was he working through the people that prayed for it, et cetera, et cetera. But also, many miracles, as you know, the Bible refers to them as signs and wonders. Many miracles are not only for the benefit of the person and family that experiences the miracle, whatever type it may be, but also it's a sign of what God is wanting to do. And recently, in my home church, there was a uh, healing and a bit of a miracle that I thought was a prophetic picture of what God is wanting to bring us into, far more than we can think or ask. It was a Sunday morning, and during the ministry time, I gave a word of knowledge that the Lord wanted to heal people uh, with joint problems, particularly feet problems and ankle problems. A number of people came up uh, for that, and that was this spring, and actually it was the Sunday just before Easter Sunday. So I was, uh, was there for two weeks, and I'm, I'm, I'm there Easter Sunday, and I'm out greeting, smoothing things, all the silly things pastors are supposed to do. And no, uh, I'm just messing with you. And uh, uh, a lady comes up to me. She's about uh, 30 years old. And she said, I, I want to tell you what happened to me last Sunday uh, when you gave that word of knowledge about uh, feet problems. She said, I had been in uh, Costco the week before and uh, I had uh, tripped and fallen, probably running to one of those free food deals they had in Costco. <laughs> anyway, no, just joking. You've never done that. But. Uh, <laughs> But she said, I really messed up my foot. I had to go to the emergency ward, and uh, they've had a flexible cast on my foot. I've been in incredible pain. And she said, when you gave that word, I hobbled on my crutches up to the front, and some people in the ministry team prayed for me. And she said, when I got back to uh, my seat, I noticed all the pain was gone. I was walking without any pain and uh, without crutches. But she said, that's not why I'm telling you this. She said, uh, "I think it was her left ear. She said, "I've been almost completely deaf in my left ear for seven or eight years now that we're, we're hearing aids, the most advanced type." And she said, uh, "While they were praying for my foot, something was happening that had never happened before, my hearing aid kept popping out of my ear. And it happened like three or four times. She said, it was really annoying because I'm trying to focus on getting my prayer, my foot healed up in the prayer. And this thing keeps bothering me. She said, it wasn't till Monday afternoon I realized I'm hearing perfectly. Yeah. <coughs> so we understood by faith that the Lord gave a word of knowledge. He wanted to heal people with feet and ankle problems, et cetera. And we understand that God loves to heal. You know, Jehovah Rapha, the Lord God he heals you. I'm saying that by faith, we understand. Anyway, we'll keep going. But uh, God was doing far more than we could think or ask. We didn't have a word of knowledge about the ear. We didn't pray for it, didn't think about it. At times, I've been in meetings where uh, there was actually one lady uh, in our Sunday morning worship, um, her, she came with her daughter, her grown daughter, to the meeting. She was completely blind in both eyes. She walked out of the meeting. Both eyes were completely open. She was so shocked about it, she didn't even communicate to the church till two weeks later. Thought it was some weird fluke. Nobody, nobody <laughs> prayed for her in the meeting. There was no word of knowledge that God was going to touch people with bad eyes or blind eyes. But she walked out 100% healed. And I believe that this healing, that we're going for a foot, but God has opened deaf ears, it's indicative that God has wanted to do far more than we can think or ask. About five of you are excited. We're going to get somewhere this weekend. So in effect, because of the importance of God's presence, the Holy Spirit, I believe that to a degree, we've suffered from that. As his role has been marginalized, and as I said, you know, it's it's not just that we can discern things, but it's only by the input of the Holy Spirit that we can really come to grips with what the Word says. The Word was inspired by the Holy Spirit. Historically, we know that, like with the Great Awakening, you know, uh, in the middle part of the 18th century and the latter part that went up until about 1840. 1850 or so, and then the Great Awakening that happened uh, with the Azusa Street, and in Australia, Melbourne, Australia, and also in Wales at the turn of the last century. When these things begin to happen for those Christians and those churches that respond, it's a little bit like what Jesus said, those who have, more should be given, but then those who don't have, even what they have, will be taken away from them. You know, we... Think about meetings like this. You know, we don't have 5,000 people here. And sometimes we look at our Christian activity, our church activity, and we think, well, how relevant is it to what we're doing to really to the big picture out there? It is very, very relevant because the Spirit of God moves in unseen ways and in ways beyond what we can understand. And we've all heard testimonies about just one person Whose life is changing, meaning that goes on to be a world changer. Yeah. But the opposite is also true that when God begins to bring about a move of the Spirit, there's a cost to not responding to that. Now, as I said, what I believe was the third great awakening over the last 300 years or so. Um, It really, uh, there's some debate about whether it started in Melbourne, Australia, around 1904. Melbourne, Australia, around that time, they began to have a, before the term home groups was even invented, they began to have a a prayer meeting, began to launch out in homes. And at one point, they estimate that possibly 50% of all the the homes in Melbourne, or or, I'm sorry, 25% of all the homes in Melbourne, Australia, we having weekly home prayer meetings, and so that means that possibly a large percentage of the Melbourne population was moving. It was an amazing move of God, and of course, the people in Australia who have studied this believe that's what led to the Welsh revival, <laughs> that uh, just had incredible impact. But the same within the same time frame was at Zeus Street in Los Angeles, and uh, Los Angeles. You know what happened there was a small church. The building could only hold 180 people. But do you know that church historians, they estimate that one out of every four Christians on the face of the earth today can trace their spiritual lineage back to Azusa Street. What happened to that little church in Australia? Pastored by in a racially mixed church, which was very unusual in those days in age, that day and age, by an African-American pastor who used to sit in the meetings with a box over his head because he did not want to be disrupted by anything happening in the meeting he just wanted to stay fixed on god but today they estimate one out of every four christians on the face of the earth can trace their heritage back to them do not despise despise the day of small beginnings but around the year 1908 1909 a number of the leading pastors and theologians in Germany gathered together in Berlin to discuss this outpoint of Pentecost that had been happening in Australia, happening in Wales, happening in the United States, and it was beginning to impact churches throughout Europe. And they came up with what was called the Berlin Declaration in September 15, 1909. And there were some 56 of the most highly respected theologians and pastors, meaning, in a sense, the government, the church government of, of Germany, made this declaration. And I'm not going to read it all to you, but I'm just going to read four the four primary points they made about the supposed outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Number one, this so-called Pentecostal movement is from below, meaning satanic influence, and is therefore the result of demonic activity in which Satan intertwines truth with lies. Number two, they said it is impossible to recognize this movement as sent from God. Number three, they said the Church of God in Germany must reject this movement. Number four, they said this issue is non-biblical teaching from the above statements. And number five, they said, we believe there is only one Pentecost. We do not expect a new Pentecost. We are waiting for the soon return of Christ. Now, what I'm about to say, I need to qualify this by 10 in advance, that number one, I love the church in Germany. I've done extensive ministry in Germany over the last 30 years. I have great friends pastoring their leading churches, and I love the German culture as well, well, some aspects of it. I'm not big on sauerkraut. Number two, I was born in Germany. So when I say this, I'm not making an anti German statement. I'm saying an anti church statement when the church rejects what the Spirit is trying to do. In effect, they quenched, they governmentally quenched any Pentecostal move taking a stronghold in the church in Germany. What's the fruit of that? Well, Six years later, what began out of Germany, historically, was called the Great War, World War I. Because more people in Europe died of that war than anything previously. And so when it was over, it was called the Great War because they could not conceive of anything close to that ever happening again. Well, guess what? Out of Germany 20 years later, it did. With horrific persecution, murder, and slaughter, of the Jews as well as other minority groups. And I just want to say to you that what we do in our lives as individuals, what we do in our lives and families in responding to God, what we do in our home groups, what we do as churches, whether it's a large church or a small church, it can have an impact way beyond what we can understand at the present time. You know, my wife and I first met uh, Mark and Jane, my um, mine's come like it is Jane, right? Yes. yes. Uh, around um, 1998, yes. we were just getting ready to move from Toronto. We had moved to Toronto in 1992. Uh, we moved to Toronto in May of 1992 in time for me to uh, lead a prophetic church, a prophetic conference with our church there at that time, Toronto Airport Christian Fellowship. We, the church had grown to a whopping number of 175, only to shrink down to 120 because they sent about 40 people across town to start another church. And so a not very big church, The first at the end of the first week we're there, we start a prophetic conference, and I'm in between two sessions, we're worshiping. God gave me an open vision of Niagara Falls coming down over the city of Toronto, of living waters coming from heaven to Toronto. The Lord said, In a year and a half, I'm going to pour out my spirit over Toronto, and it's going to impact churches all over the globe. It will go from here to the nations. So this sounds wonderful. It sounds awesome. It sounds encouraging. But come on, we're a church of 120 people. What are we going to do that's going to impact churches the nations? Well, approximately a year and a half later, third week in January 1994, it hit. And they estimate that over the next six years, conservatively they estimate that between four and five million people walk through the doors of that church from all over the globe, even kind of weird, obscure places like Australia. They came from there. (laughs) But from all over the globe, including from the underground church in, in Vietnam and Cambodia. And so a lot of times, we think everything counts in large amounts. And I love large crowds, large churches, because of the resource and the, the faith level, the energy you can get in conferences and worship and all of that sort of thing. But I tell you that everyday men and women in everyday churches, as we respond to the Spirit of God, there is no telling what the ripple effect from you and I saying yes to the Lord what this gonna have to do, way beyond what we can understand. I wanna refer to three different stories in the Gospels that all took place after the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. The first story is the two disciples on the road to Emmaus from Luke 24. You know the story, the two disciples were walking along, and they're talking about everything that's happened, the crucifixion of Jesus and the empty tomb, everything going on, and they're just wondering, gosh, what's going to happen to us? Are we going to be persecuted as well? And it says that a man appeared on the road, began to walk with them. And you know the story. It turns out it's Jesus, but they did not recognize him. And he said to them, you know, what are you guys talking about? And they turned and looked at him and said, are you the only one that doesn't understand what's just been happening? What does that remind you of? It reminds you of our prayer lives when we're going through a crisis. God, are you the only one that doesn't seem to understand what's going on here? Seems like you're on a vacation and you haven't given me your cell phone number, you know? But Jesus responded to them in Luke 24, and he said, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things? I wish we had time. I'd go into a little bit of theology of suffering, but I don't want to bring you down before you've eaten or whatever. (laughs) Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter in his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, Jesus, interpreted to them all in the scriptures all the things concerning himself. And then when he appeared to the twelve, the full will the eleven now, and he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law and Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And it says then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. I've been a, like many of you I've been a student of the word of God for decades and I don't want to say how many I it's it's I know I'm looked like I'm 32 but anyway but you can know the bible in a textbook sort of way you can know the bible in a scholastic sort of way But unless we're filled with the Spirit, we're not really going to get what the Lord is trying to say to us and what the Lord is trying to say to the church. We need the Holy Spirit to open our minds to understand what the Word of God is really saying. One person is excited. I'll focus over here. (laughs) You guys are on your own over here. Second story, Mary Magdalene. She goes running to the tomb And you know the story, the tomb, the stone's rolled away, the tomb is empty. She turns and sees a man that she says she supposed him to be the gardener. Could it just be that until the Lord Jesus returns, he's going to appear to you in ways that we're not always going to recognize? So how are you going to recognize him if you can't recognize him? Mary Magdalene, seeing Jesus, failed to recognize him, and she says, can you tell me where they've taken my master? And it was Jesus he said, Mary, and all of a sudden her eyes were opened up. See, that's what happens when the Lord personally speaks to you. Peter and six of the disciples, they know Jesus is resurrected. What he's up to, they haven't a clue. I know what you're thinking, sounds like us. But anyway, they went back to fishing all night. When in doubt, go back to what you used to do, right? <laughs> they go back to fishing all night, John 21, and they didn't catch any fish. Very reminiscent of the first time Peter met Jesus. Fished all night. And kind of think, Jesus comes walking up with big multitudes and says, Take you out in your boat. Want to preach to the multitude, sound vibration carries across water. So he preached to the multitude, and he says to Peter, you haven't caught any fish, have you, no? He says, well, just go out into deeper waters. Three years later, after the crucifixion and resurrection, he says something different. The disciples, after fishing all night, don't have any fish, they're coming into shore, and they're, they're not that far away, only 100 feet. They can clearly see this man standing on the shore but it says they failed to recognize him. And he yelled at them, just like what Jesus had said to Peter three years before, do you have any fish? No. Well, he didn't say to them go into deeper waters because over three years, they had gone into the deep waters of the spirit of God. This time he said, just throw your net out on their other side of the boat. And just like three years before, it's filled to the point of, of bursting. The nets are almost bursting. And I'd like to prophetically encourage some of you that feel like you've been in a real dry place. Maybe you feel like you've been a barren season, but you've been faithful, you've been walking with God. I know this has almost become a cliché because it's in one of the worship songs we sing quite a bit. But particularly at the times where it seems like God is not working, that's when he's working the most in your life. Because, you see, we measure what God is doing by the externals. God measures what he's doing by who you are inside. And see, one of the key purposes of God during the dry seasons, he's preparing you so when the breakthroughs, when success comes, you can stand and walk in that rather than being ruled by that. Does that help anybody? See, it's not the externals, it's the internals that God is primarily concerned with. Yeah. So here's the point. The two disciples on the road to Emmaus, they see Jesus, but they don't recognize him. How could that be? Mary Magdalene she sees Jesus, but doesn't recognize him. How could that be? Peter and six other disciples, including John, they see Jesus, but they don't recognize him. How could that be? It's very simple, but yet it's very profound. That with the resurrection of Jesus, the people of God had transcended from the age of the law and the things of God being worked out externally to the Spirit of God now dwelling within. They were now in the age of the Spirit. See, up until the point, Mary and all these disciples, they could see and recognize Jesus with these eyes. Now... We recognize Jesus by the ears and and eyes of our heart. This is why Paul prayed for the church in Ephesus, may the eyes of your heart be enlightened. Hello. To know the hope of your calling. To know the surpassing greatness of his power. To know our inheritance in the saints of his glory. Mm -hmm. And through a political lens, through a humanistic lens, It's impossible to know the wisdom of God for this day and hour. We need the leading and the input of the Holy Spirit. When we look at the protests that have happened over the last three years, and we compare that to the protests that happened in the 1960s, there is one crucial difference. Both protest movements centered out of civil rights that isn't obviously a need. We see that quite clearly. But the difference is, in the 60s, for the most part, not entirely, but for the most part, the protests were peaceable. That has not been the testimony, has it, over the last three years. There has been some. But where I live out in East San Diego County, kind of a sleepy, kind of older community in San Diego, Just in one night alone, both of our neighborhood banks were burnt to the ground. entire shopping malls were almost destroyed. Just incredible what took place. So what is the difference between today and the early 1960s? Two things. The primary leader of the civil rights movement in the 1960s, Dr. Martin Luther King, was a man of God. And I know there's been some negative things written about him, but come on, none of us are perfect. But he represented the prince of peace, Jesus. And so he insisted on peace. What's happened in the last 60 years? In America, we have aborted over 60 million babies. If you have had an abortion, I do not say this to condemn anybody. We are all on a learning curve. We're all getting healed of our wounds. We're we're all on the same page together. Please understand that. But there are some eight times in the Old Testament where God thoroughly rebukes any sort of following of the false god, Molech. And six of those times, Molech was identified with child sacrifice. The people of the different nations, including sometimes the Hebrew people that sacrificed to Molech, they did it because of the demonic depraved hope that that false god would bless them with a better life. Well, guess what? Primarily, the abortions that have happened in the Western world nation last 60 years have been because people wanted a better life than they thought they would have that baby. I don't stand before you and say that there's never ever a reason for that, such as if the mother's life is in danger. I'm, I'm not going that direction. But you see, we as a culture in the West World Nations, we have opened up the door for a false king. That's what the word Molech means in the original language, it's the word king we have opened up for a false god, and that is a god of violence and death. And so as we look at all the violence that's happened in our nation, it's not the protest in and of itself that were wrong, we've all seen some of the horrific things that have happened that led to those protests. But the direction the protests went into is something else entirely. And I think the real sad thing is that in wanting to be relevant to people, so much of the church has compromised on the word of God to the point where sin is no longer being called sin. G.K. Chesterton said this, We do not want a church that will move with the world. We want a church that will move the world. And so when it comes to some of the hot topics of the day, like same-sex marriage and all the different things like that, some pastors and some preachers said, well, we just don't want to offend anybody. God is offensive because he's God Almighty. He is the great I am and we're the great we're not. He never apologizes for being God. I've known the Lord for well over 45 years. There is not one time that I've disagreed with the Lord that he said to me, you know what, Mark, maybe you're right. <laughs> maybe I didn't think that one through too clearly. No. And people say, well, if if we just, you know. No, there's a whole art to preaching the truth in love, and I, I teach about that in pastor's conferences. I'm not saying we speak condemnation. It's not... Condemnation, it's the kindness of God that leads people to repentance. But what kind of doctor would it be if because of some aches and pains you went to him and he did a thorough diagnosis and he said saw you had cancer, but he didn't want to tell you had cancer because he was afraid it might make you uncomfortable. We would say that's a terrible doctor. And people say, Well, you know. Saying these things might drive people away. Well, what about trusting in the anointing of the Holy Spirit that it might bring conviction unto repentance? You see, the game plan has not changed over the last 2,000 years. The message of Jesus, the message of John the Baptist, the message of the 12 disciples was not come as you are and stay as you are. It was repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. And Jesus did not say merely seek the kingdom and its blessing. He said, seek the kingdom of God and its righteousness. Yeah. Yeah. Well, anyway, I'm going to get off with that. I could keep going this direction for two hours, but I see the looks on your face. So is it just a matter of preaching more of the fullness of God? Well, that's part of the equation. The Apostle Paul said to the elders of Ephesus, He said, I did not withhold from you the full counsel of God. He actually said, I'm I'm guilty of no one's blood because I've given the full word. I think it's a very dangerous thing, you know, that some pastors or preachers that have compromised with their God, we forget, we're going to stand before the throne of God someday. I don't want, by the grace of God, anybody's blood to be in my hand because we neglected, but anyway. So, let's move on from the bad news. <laughs> I've had uh, primarily, when it comes to direction for uh, prophetic words and things like that, sometimes over people, especially for churches and cities, and occasionally for nations. Uh, The Lord speaks to me primarily through visions and uh, some people say well that means you're a seer. Well, whatever works. (laughs) (laughs) But of the few, what I would say, authentic throne room revelations I've had, there are two to me that are highly significant. The first one was back in the early part of the 1990s and it had to do with Toronto. And I had three different visions that I had two about six months apart, where I saw part two of Niagara Falls, a waterfall coming from heaven over Toronto, is going to go to the nations, and the waters just going out all over the globe. But the third one I saw about six months before it hit was of the throne room. And what I saw was the Father on his throne, the Jesus next to him. And the Father, before the throne of God, there was like one of those big blow-up beach dolls, you know, with the world painted on a world map, because that's really how small the world is compared to the throne of God. Have you ever thought about, you know, I know you have thought about it, but have you ever considered that, you know, the word tells us that we're seated in the heavenlies, you know, that when we're here worshiping God, whether you're by yourself or like here tonight or Sunday morning, wherever you fellowship at, When we're collectively worshiping God, that's when we're really practicing being seated in the heavenlies Mm -hmm. because we're joining in with the myriad of angels giving glory to him. But anyway, the, the world was hovering for the throne of God and the Father was breathing upon it. You could see his breath like a cloud going forward. And most of you know the word for spirit in the Hebrew is the word ruach that means breath of life. And um, as he breathed upon it, um, just uh, outbreaks of moves of the Spirit began all over the globe. And that's fine. I, I can say, okay, this is great, God. But then something happened that really caused my religious spirit to kick in. Something I really felt uncomfortable with. I saw a vi- as the vision continued and the, Jesus was watching what the Father is releasing, Jesus started laughing. I thought to myself, Jesus doesn't laugh, he's holy, <laughs> he's, he's serious, he's focused. I had been in meetings in 10 years previous to that, right, seeing people occasionally laugh uncontrollably by the Holy Spirit, but when that moved, the Spirit broke out in Toronto, one of the primary manifestations was people just could not stop laughing. And the critics said, well, why are they laughing? Because their heart is re- receiving an unfathomable revelation of the joy of the Father in them, his delight in them, and the victory of Jesus. See, there's some things you experience that come first in the language of the heart and then the language of the mind. And sometimes your heart is grasping something more completely than your mind is. You say, well, that hasn't meant me. Yes, it would, or else you wouldn't be here tonight. You didn't know what you were signing up for when you gave your life to Jesus. But you were being gripped by a greater revelation than you could understand at the time. And so when the move of the Spirit began, you know, it was in meetings, you know, all over the globe. In fact, in Stockholm, where there would be hundreds and hundreds of people sometimes just laughing uncontrollably from the joy of the Lord. We had a video testimony from about 1995 in Toronto from a couple that come to one of our conferences all the way from South Africa. And uh, as we were doing, as we used to do at that time, we, when people were just really getting snockered from God, that's a theological word. Yeah. <laughs> Isaiah said, I've come undone, so. Yeah. Uh, this couple, every meeting, morning and night, for like five days of this conference, was just on the floor, just laughing, just thoroughly intoxicated with the spirit. So, our media team asked them if they could uh, do an interview with them. And laughingly, they, they did the interview and they said, What's going on in their lives? They said, We have had an absolute terrible message, a uh, terrible marriage for years and years and years. We've been on the divorce of a verge of divorce for years. We've gone through all sorts of counseling, tried all sorts of things. And, uh, you know, we've been close to divorce. but we heard about this move of the Spirit that was happening in Toronto. So we decided, well, let's just give God one more chance. Let's let's go there and see if maybe God will touch our hearts. And then, during the very first meeting, they were just overwhelmed by the Spirit of God. They were intoxicated in the Spirit. They managed to get into their hotel room that night they got down on their knees, they looked each other in the, in, the, in, the, in the eyes, and they asked each other's forgiveness for the hardness of their heart, and there in their hotel room they redid their marriage vows. So the interviewer then said to him, well, how bad was your marriage? The wife starts laughing again and says, well, at one point a few years ago I was chasing my husband through the house with a butcher knife. <laughs> now, that's a little bit worse than your marital problems. <laughs> That's a whole different level. But see, it's not a matter of a manifestation. It's not a matter of what does or doesn't happen in a meeting. It's a matter of a changed life, because that's what the word repent means, to change. And so when I I look back at that vision that I, I received in November or October of 1993, just a few months, things broke out. It was significant to me not only significant the incredible privilege of seeing that vision of the throne of God, but also history of what happened. 2016 November during uh, the presidential election, I was in Jerusalem. I wanted to get far away from the election as possible. No. <laughs> uh, I had been asked by a team uh, from Canada called Watchmen of the Nation to. Uh, be part of their leader small leadership corps for an international conference of prayer and worship they were doing in Jerusalem. They uh, they actually had over five thousand people gathered together for five nights of worship and four days, and it was a very different conference. There wasn't wasn't focused on teaching or preaching. Uh, they began every meeting with lots of worship and about, I don't know, a handful of us would meet for an hour before every meeting three times a day and prayerfully talk about what we sensed the Lord doing. And uh, they had asked me to be there to help contribute to that. And I received a vision halfway through those four, five nights there in Jerusalem. Um, It was held in the, the sports arena outside of Jerusalem. And I think the second or third uh, night there during worship, I saw something quite similar to what I'd seen in uh, uh, October of 1993. I saw again the throne of God, the Father in Jesus, and again the world was hovering before the throne of God, and the Father was breathing, but this time it wasn't like a cloud going forth. There was these, like if you've ever seen a really heavy wind and rainstorm when the rain's almost going horizontal, there were from the throne of God coming red drops, blood red, symbolic of the compassion of the Lamb of God. And they were hitting different cities and different nations, and everywhere these blood drops hit, the fire of God sprang up. And there began to just be intense moves of the Spirit, not necessarily like Toronto or anywhere else. I felt like the Lord said that the coming moves of the Spirit are going to be characterized by three things. One, a profound revelation of the majesty and holiness of Jesus. I believe from what little part I've seen, and nobody has the whole revelation, But from what little I've seen, I believe coming moves of the Spirit, the closest thing that's happened to that in the last two to 300 years has been on those small islands off the north of Scotland in late 1949, 50 and 51, 52 in the Outer Hebrides. Church after church, community after community that opened up to the move of the Spirit, that there was such a profound presence of God that they came up with the saying of how they define revival and they said we define revival as such a heavy presence of god that people in our communities now begin to have a god consciousness see that that's not about the preaching and teaching or pulpit ministry of what we're doing in here see we've been having moves the spirit But what we need is an awakening. Of the thousands and thousands that got saved in the Outer Hebrides, most of the people did not get saved in the meetings. They got saved because of this heavy, overwhelming presence of Jesus. We could talk about that for hours. There's a couple of great books out on the Outer Hebrides. They're out of print, you can get them online. But both of them were written by eyewitness accounts that were there and lived through it. And the number one thing they talk about is not the preaching, not the world evangelist or revivalist that came to town, but just the awesomeness of the presence of God. There's going to be a great freedom for evangelism because there's a boldness combined with meekness and gentleness that only really comes out of the Holy Spirit. It can't be manufactured. But there's also going to be a a freedom for the miraculous beyond what we've seen. There's a, a challenge prophetically, I believe, the book of Job gives us. I know that's probably your favorite book. You know the story of Job. They went through all these severe problems that he maybe never really did comprehend why God allowed those things to happen. But just two verses I want to point out to you that is towards the end of the book of Job when God began to start speaking to Job after all the hell he'd gone through, the abandonment, the rejection, the loss, the death, family members, all of that. He said in Job 26, verse 14, speaking about God, the outward things that he'd understood and seen, he said, Behold, these are but the outskirts of his ways, and how small a whisper do we hear of him, but the thunder of his power, who can understand? And I want to suggest to you that all of us, myself especially, we have seen and experienced so little yeah. of what El Shaddai, God Almighty, can do yes. when it's his timing. Yes. But the second verse I want to relate to is out of Job 40 when Job really began to start hearing from the Lord. He said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand upon my mouth. A friend of mine a number of years ago was ministering in uh, London, England, and he happened to be with the church that was primarily made up of immigrants from Jamaica to London. And I've done a lot of ministry in, in the UK and uh, England, and especially in London, some large cities, There'll be, you'll be going down a, a, a busy two-lane and east direction road, and then there'll be trees, and then there'll be, it's not really a road, it's, it's not even a, a frontage road, it's like a narrow uh, driveway, a communal driveway that the property shares, they can get it out of the driveway and then get to the road. It's not really meant for thorough traffic, through traffic. And the two brothers that picked my friend up, they got there very late to the hotel, and there was rush hour traffic, which is almost all the time in London, and they realize they're going to get the speaker late to the meeting. And so the driver was driving a Range Rover, a big old thing, you know. He looks over, and he sees that little driveway road. It's clear for about a block or two ahead. Says, okay, we're going to bypass traffic here. So he pulls over, and they're speeding up, which was thoroughly illegal going down this road. And then they notice, all of a sudden, about a half block up, there are a whole bunch of trash cans lined up with just very little clearance. My friend's sitting in the back seat, his eyes are getting as wide as saucers, and he hears the guy on the passenger side turn to the driver and he said, keep in mind, they're from Jamaica. He says, small yourself up, mon, small yourself up. I remember he shared about this in a conference we had together. I'll never forget this, he said, this is the word of God. We need to learn to small ourselves up before God Almighty. And we all have needs. You have needs. I have needs. We have things, the family members, you know, especially in this day and age with all the economic uncertainty. Uh, we all know people that are desperately ill with COVID and other diseases right now. We all have needs. But that consuming fire that I saw, that those blood red drops hit, the blood of the lamb, where the fire of God's holiness matched, magic began to spring up, It was symbolic of God's consuming fire. People were getting lost. Where we were coming back to the original words of Jesus pick up your cross daily, die to yourself. And to a degree, we've gotten lost in the focus of the unholy trinity of me, myself, and I. And we've lost sight of the Jesus of the book of Revelation. That no matter how big the beast is, no matter how smelly and ugly the Jezebel spirit may be, he is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He has triumphed and he is triumphing. We look at Afghanistan and we could talk endlessly, as people have been doing for the last three weeks now, about the politics and the wisdom of the withdrawal, how it was done. But do you know what, what? something that satanically was really a precursor to a lot of what's going on there? Afghanistan, after Iran, for the last four years, has been having this, is the second fastest growing church in the world. And it's all underground. It's all underground. Do you know that in Iran, right now, for the last year, there are actually meetings in mosques that are almost empty, devoid of people, because there is such a powerful move of the kingdom of God taking place, and it's all happening underground right now. It's all happening in house church meetings. Now, I don't want to. I want to bring this to conclusion. But a few months ago, I heard an opportunity. It was an invitation-only meeting for a group of leaders in San Diego to hear from a guy who's one of the apostolic leaders in uh, the Church of Iran. And he talked about Afghanistan as well. But he said something very interesting about people in Muslim countries facing persecution towards Christians that give their lives to Christ. He said, when they talk about Jesus, and when they think about Jesus, primarily they do not think and talk about him as Savior, they think and talk about him as Lord, God Almighty. And... I, I know in my heart of hearts that, uh, you know, there's so many good things, you know, that, that are, so many blessings in our country. I'm not diminishing that at all. There's a reason why people all over the world want to come here. Yeah. I know it's a shock to some, but that's still a reality. But in the Western world, we need an awakening of the great I am, the majesty, awesomeness, and authority of the Father and the only begotten Son that he's given the nations to. So, I began this trying to talk about the slumbering spirit. Let me finish with this. Ephesians, Ephesians, Revelation, where are we at? Chapter uh, three. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works, that you have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Aren't you glad that sometimes the prophetic is steeped in symbolism? (laughs) I'm glad he wasn't saying that in reality, but he was saying that in comparison to the life he had for them. And it goes on. I'm not going to cover the rest of it. But how do we awaken ourselves from the slumbering spirit? Going all the way back to what we started with, Psalm 73. Until we really come into the presence of God, we're not going to really see things from his perspective. And you know what God wants to do far more than we can think or ask to us and through us. Yes. Are you still alive? Yes. About eight of you are semi-excited. We're going to, yeah, <laughs> I won't say that. <laughs> um, we're going to do some ministry tonight, and uh, uh, we can't just talk about being filled with the Spirit, can we? We need to give room for the Holy Spirit to stir us, to shake us, uh, to wake us up. But I will mention quickly, we, in fact, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it tonight, but we have uh, a number of my books and CDs and materials out there. Just one of them I'll mention quickly. Um, uh, back in 2008, a church I did a lot with that was based in Dayton, Ohio, a number of people financially just got devastated uh, because of the, uh, most of you remember there was a huge financial crisis that hit the whole world at that time. Ohio, a lot of the jobs were rooted uh, in manufacturing and we had a lot of uh, jobs, uh, factories, closed their doors, cut shifts, all sorts of things. And we had people in our church that not only lost their jobs, some of them lost their houses, lost their pensions, their retirement fund, and uh, everything they'd been working towards, some of them for 25 years or so. But yet, in person after person after person, I, I began to hear amazing testimonies of God redeeming those situations. And so it, it launched me out on a seminar I did a lot in 2017, and, or 2008, 2009, 2010. I ended up writing a book about it called Breakthrough in Times of Breakdown. And it's based upon the promise in Psalm 37 that even during a time of famine, the righteous will prosper. And how many of you know biblical prosperity is having enough to give away? The goal is not to go from poverty to prosperity. The goal is to go from poverty to generosity. I was thinking three people might say amen, but okay, we'll keep going. So this book, Breakthrough in Times of Breakdown, I think it's even more relevant today with all the lockdowns, the economy being shaken, and what we're seeing happening around us with COVID, all of that, because there's such a fear factor, even the body of Christ. I know nobody in these three churches I'm talking about the church down the street. They've got a real fear factor. But this is talking about the ways of God so that we can walk in that and know God's provision not only to us but through us on every level. So let's just stand, if we would. Uh, Jane, are you up for just – they look like they need a little bit of mood music to take them up there. Um, Would you just uh, put your hand over your heart right now? Close your eyes, and would you repeat after me? Father God, I want to thank you tonight that you have more for me than my eyes have seen, my ears have heard, more than I can comprehend. So right now, tonight, I give glory to you, the one who can do far more, far more, far more than I can think or ask according to your Holy Spirit's power that works to me and through me. And so I tell you, Lord, I'm desperate for you. As the deer pants for water, my soul pants for you. You've commanded me to be filled with your spirit. I humbly come before you in the name of Jesus. And I ask that right now, would you begin to fill me with your spirit would you enlighten the eyes of my heart, would you give me the spirit of wisdom and revelation to know the surpassing power of your Holy here, to know our inheritance and glory To fill you with this spirit tonight, so that streams of living waters are flowing out of your innermost being. Come, Lowest Spirit. Come, the Spirit. Come, the spirit. spirit. I can just see the Spirit of God touching it. It's obvious there's some people here, even as we spoke about the joy of the Lord, or receiving that. But there's also some of you here, in the last few minutes, in your heart of hearts, you've been having, um, and again, oftentimes when God releases things, it's initially in the language of the heart. It cannot always be understood in the English or Spanish or whatever your native language may be. But there's some of you, you feel like you're being gripped right now the last 10 minutes or so, or maybe the last, I don't know, hour, or maybe it started during worship earlier. You're being gripped by the holiness of God. And I want to, we're not going to spend a long time here. We're going to be doing a lot of ministry tomorrow, praying for different illnesses, as well as we're going to pray for the impartation of the power of the Holy Spirit and for a fresh anointing for healing and a fresh anointing for prophecy and miracles. But I want to close by saying if you feel in your heart of hearts that you're receiving a fresh download of the holiness of God and the glory of Jesus, I want to ask you to just come to the front, right? of God in your life I'm seeing a funny picture and and, uh, it's not that God is a gambler but um, I'm seeing the hands of the Lord pick up a deck of cards that represent the two of you your destiny your calling and you feel like that you know how sometimes and I don't know maybe you've never played cards before but sometimes you can shuffle the deck but it really doesn't change that much the cards still have the same flow but i see the hands lower these great massive hands they shuffle the deck and it just shuffles absolutely perfectly and then as you begin to unpack the cards they're in a completely different order and they're in a logical order and they're in this is a funny word to use about cards but they're in a um, uh, Come like they've gone, they've come into an attractive order. And there's things the two of you have done in the last few years trying to reshape things, trying to reroute things, and it's always kind of comes up the same. But it'll be the Lord is saying about the two of you, about the calling and the purposes for God, in your life, what lies ahead of you. Now he's rough reshuffling the deck, and the cards are gonna come up in a but he's not gambling. He knows exactly what he's doing. Does that make any sense to you? So Father, I bless that couple in the name of Jesus, and I bless the divine purposes. And even as we quoted from Ephesians 3, 17, 18, 19, that you may know the hope of your calling upon the two of you. It's firm, it's secure, and God knows the good plans he has I said tomorrow we're going to be praying at different times for an impartation of spiritual gifts, prophecy, healing, miracles. I'm going to be talking about how we can facilitate making a rest place for the glory of God. I'm also going to be talking about um, just uh, God's heart for this city the role of the church in this city. It's something I felt, Lord, uh, as I began to pray about coming here, Lord showed me about the church of the city, not just a church, but the church of the city. But in the New American Standard Version of the Bible in Psalm 149, it reads, God beautifies the afflicted ones with salvation. So turn to the person next to you and say, you're better looking than you were a couple hours ago all right grab a friend and bring them back tomorrow the doors will be open at 9 30 with refreshments and we'll begin at 10 and we'll see you in the morning go out and make a difference full of the holy spirit in jesus name amen